Hello, and welcome to Shoesmith's Data Litigation Podcast. I'm Phil Tansley. I'm a partner in the data litigation team, and my main specialism is dealing with data breach and litigation that follows on from data breach. I have genuinely lost count of how many data breaches I've had to deal with, but it's well into the three figures, so I like to think that I know what I'm talking about. I'm here with Matthew McLaughlin, who can introduce himself. Hello, and uh, yes, I'm Matthew. I'm a senior associate in Shoesmith's London office. I'm in the commercial litigation team, but also the data litigation team, and I have a uh, focus with Phil on uh, data and cyber law. So we thought in this series of podcasts, we'd start by talking about the Lloyd and Google decision of the Supreme Court, which if you're a data litigator in, in the UK, you'll probably have had to have been living under a stone for the last few years um, to have, have missed. But for any, any people listening in uh, from outside the UK, uh, Lloyd and Google was really set up as being the, the decisive case on whether or not collective data breach class actions could be brought in the UK, and if they were viable, how they'd be brought. What we wanted to achieve in the series was talk about Lloyd and Google itself, uh, but also take a bit more time to really delve into the weeds and think about some of the implications of the decision for particular areas, be it uh, international uh, litigation, uh, e-commerce, insurance, Um, and really have a deeper dive into the other aspects of the case. And as we're putting together the series, we've also thought, why limit it to Lloyd and Google itself? What we'd like to look at is what's going on generally in data litigation in the UK. So without more ado, we'll tell you what Lloyd and Google is about, and then look out for the later podcasts where we and some friends are going to be looking at the implications of the case in their particular areas and wider. So Matthew, Lloyd and Google, what's it all about? So Lloyd and Google was brought, it's a claim brought by Mr. Lloyd, who is a uh, consumer rights champion uh, to some extent. And he, br- he brought a claim um, whereby Google had been using what was called a Safari workaround. So iPhone users' Safari settings blocked cookies. Um, and what Google had developed was a way to bypass that to obtain, well, to put a tracking cookie down and to obtain browser-generated information without the user's knowledge or consent. Predominantly, they used it for marketing purposes, advertising, but the full suite of purposes, not quite known. However, this wasn't a substantive claim, or rather, this wasn't a... um, substantive hearing, because Google was based in the US, Mr. Lloyd had to apply to court to say, um, please, can I serve Google in the US out of the jurisdiction? However, it brought in fundamental questions for the Supreme Court. Primarily, can a data subject uh, sue merely for the loss of control of data, so without any financial or proof of non-material loss, for example, distress, and also can Mr. Lloyd bring this claim on behalf of the 4.4 million affected iPhone users on what is called an opt-out basis? And Phil can tell you a wee bit more about what that means. Yeah, the listeners may be asking themselves why the claim was brought for loss of control of the iPhone user's data rather than simply for, for damages for breach of de- data protection 
regulation. And the reason for that goes back into the history of how collective actions could be brought in the UK. So in, in the UK, we don't have um, opt-out class actions in the same way that you have in other jurisdictions like Canada and the US in most cases. Uh, what you have is two mechanisms. There's the is an opt-out class action for competition claims only. But for most claims, you can either go down the route of having a group litigation order, which is an opt-in mechanism, and it's considerably more complicated to get off the ground than an opt-out class action. Um, or you can have what's called a representative class action. Now, the difficulty with a representative class action is that every single claimant who's part of the class action needs to have the same interest. And that includes the same claim for breach of, of duty or breach of statute against the defendant, but it also includes the same damage. And a lot of claims historically have been defeated on the basis that um, although the, the, the wrong complained about by the claimants is the same, the consequences are different. Um, so that was what, what the claimants were trying to get around in this case. So rather than saying we, we've got you know, 4 million putative claimants, all of whom will have suffered slightly different damage because they might have um, spent more time on, on Safari, less time on Safari. The sort of browsing activity they might have got into would be more or less commercially valuable, or they might have, have simply used an iPhone for different periods during the, the, the relevant period between 2011 and 2012. So all of those considerations would have meant that they had slightly different quantum claims. So the idea of having a loss of control claim was to get what you know, the parties called the lowest common denominator. So a claim, which the claimants put at £750 per claimant, which they could say everyone had suffered in the class action, even if they had separate and independent claims of their own. Anyway, so, Matthew, so that, so that I, it, well, it does continue because that idea of uniform damages can well, the court had to consider this quite um, in, in detail, and it said, "Can you, Mr. Lloyd, show that everybody that you're claiming on behalf of uh, suffered seven hundred and fifty pounds worth of damages?" I'm, I mean, I'm. I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly to make it slightly more um, accessible, but that, that was one of the, the key questions. And shall, shall we deliver the punchline, Phil? Shall we say that what the court decided was, no, Mr. Lloyd, we are not going to give you permission to serve out of the jurisdiction because um, we disagree that a uniform amount of damages can be given to each of the claimants on behalf of of whom you're claiming. Um, and secondly, we, we cannot accept that there is this right for just mere loss of control of data in itself. Rather, each claimant would have to show their own individual damage, or whether it be financial loss and or non-financial loss, for example, in this case, distress. So we have to have an individualized assessment of damage. And on that basis, the court said, because um, your claim isn't formulated in that way. We can't allow it to proceed as, as you've put it. Very succinctly put. It was Lord Leggett who, who gave the uh, main speech. There are two interesting parts of his reasoning. The, the, the way that the claimants had tried to 
argue that there was um, a damages claim for loss of control it wasn't brought from the, the law of data protection claims under statute at all. It was brought sort of sideways from the the tort of misuse of private information. You know, as some of the listeners will have known, the the, the tort of misuse of private information has really grown up over the last sort of 10, 15 years or so. And there's a case called Galati and MGM, which found that loss of control of personal data might itself be enough to found an independent damages claim. So the claimants were effectively saying you could have this sort of claim under the Data Protection Act. Lord Leggett said no. He said, you know, the principles under misuse of private information are very different, even though, you know, the two rights of action look superficially similar. Misuse of private information is a tort claim. And the test that claimants have to go through to establish duty, establish breach, establish loss, were fundamentally different in character from a claim under the Data Protection Act. And under the Data Protection Act, you know, breach of Section 13, there was an automatic claim unless you could uh, show that you were within within the statutory defence under Section 13.3 that you'd taken all appropriate steps to uh, safeguard customer data. And Lord Leggett thought those two were, were very conceptually distinct, and that prevented the sort of read-across argument. And the, the other avenue that the claimants tried was to say, oh, well, we should be entitled to user damages. Um, so we, we should be entitled to damages that are equal to our, our the, the value of using our data to Google. So they accepted that, you know, the way Google works is much too complicated to be able to um, ever work out what the actual economic value of that data was to Google. But they said, well, look, you know, the judge should be able to award nominal damages on the basis of that value commercially to, you know, a another um, search engine provider, or you know, the commercial value of selling that information to uh, third parties for SEO and you know, advertising purposes. But again, court threw that out, and they said, you know, that's that's a concept of damages that's only known in tort, and you can't have it if you're bringing a statutory claim under the Data Protection Act. After everyone had recovered from the, the shock of the the, the, the judgment, which um, I think a lot of a, a lot of commentators had expected to go the other way, because part of the background that we didn't explain was that you know the first in, uh, first instance the court had thrown out the claim and said essentially Mr Lloyd is a busybody, you know this is a contrived claim brought by uh, litigation funders, and um, I, you know, I'm not going to permit it to go ahead. The Court of Appeal was much more concerned about the public policy implications of, of finding against um, Lloyd. And they, they said, well, no, you know, we have to permit the claim because otherwise, you know, when will consumers have effective redress in circumstances where big tech has been trampling over their, their statutory rights? Uh, because of individually, of course, none of these claims would have been worth, um, you know, instructing lawyers and bringing um, you know, bringing litigation. And this is one of the broader questions, isn't it? It is, where do the boundaries of data rights lie? And if there is a technical infringement, is that enough to curtail Google's activity, for example? I, I, th I think that's right. I mean, there's a, there's a real theme in uh, Lloyd and Google, but also some of the other uh, data protection cases that we're going to talk about in subsequent podcasts. Of, you know, the courts do not like this idea 
that um, either you know claimant firms who um, traditionally do you know personal injury PPI foot claims, um, you know can pile in and and start bringing. Uh, multiple individual claims arising from data breach from low low risk data breaches isn't yeah. it or at the other end that you know these big litigation funding companies can come in bring claims um and i think their fear is that you know you might end up in a similar situation to to the one that you know anecdotally we hear exists in the states in that you know both sides spend millions on this litigation they settle and then you know you find out that the you know the lawyers have recovered millions but the individual damages recovered by class members is in in the dollars or sometimes even in cents the courts don't like that which is fine i think the question in many commentators minds though is does does that mean that the ordinary consumer who isn't independently wealthy has any real re- redress against big tech in circumstances like this. One of the things that some commentators have said might distinguish the position in Lloyd from the current position under the UK GDPR is that UK GDPR does recognise that data subjects should have a means of effective redress. Indeed. And and I, I guess the, the, the reason why this was such an anticipated decision is because, it, albeit it was a jurisdictional question and application, the court had the opportunity to really clarify where the boundaries lay. What is the redress that a consumer really can have? Where? How do you police the internet to to think about it in the most broad terms? You know, and and I think that the court sort of well. Well, I guess a question for Philip is: Do you think that it, the court was pragmatic here because it did chuck out these claims? But there was a real sense, though, that the court wasn't saying actually no consumers, you have no right to redress. Rather, it said, if you can get a a common um, theme, as it were, or a common um, loss with each claimant, you can, in theory, bring a class action. So if you can say um, that everybody in this group or this tier of claimants suffered the same loss, then in theory, you could bring that on, an, on, a, on a class basis. The fact that Mr. Lloyd couldn't on the way that he had formulated his claim is something that I think claimant firms and, and litigation funders are going to have to think about quite carefully. And one point to bear in mind is that the court in Lloyd and Google was actually concerned with what is now old law. It was the Data Protection Act 1998, which no longer applies. And Philip mentioned earlier about Section 13, which essentially gave the right to uh, a data subject uh, to seek compensation for infringement of the Data Protection Act. Well, those provisions have similar but not identical provisions in the current law, which is the Data Protection Act 2018, and it essentially enshrines what is now the UK GDPR which is very similar to the EU GDPR and came into force after the exit from the European Union. Hello and welcome to the ShoePod Sessions. My name is Brittany Bansal-Branch. I'm a Principal Associate in the Commercial and Projects team at ShoeSmiths. I am delighted to introduce Series 1 of the ShoePod Sessions, a journey through a contract. Here's how our series works. Each episode is a snappy six minutes long and is aimed at explaining to you the basic terms of a commercial contract. By the end of each episode, you'll have a basic grasp of what each of these terms mean and how they might affect you or your business in the context of commercial contracts. Sit back, buckle up, 
and enjoy your journey through a contract with us. So one question that has troubled commentators is, well, yes, there are similar provisions in current law, but are they the same? Do the rights that Lloyd and Google speak to apply for current data subjects? And this is one of the tensions. And I I would uh, venture to opine that, yes, I think that there are strong analogies to the extent that we can rely on Lloyd and Google um, going forward, albeit it would be interesting to see where claimants and litigation funders take that tension. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's interesting to see how the it, w- it will be interesting to see how the the UK courts interpret that tension between the rights in the GDPR UK GDPR and the the the, the letter of the Data Protection Act 2018, because UK G- GDPR and GDPR have always been interpreted um, as giving a right to, of effective redress to consumers and. That right of effective redress has has itself been interpreted as a right to bring class actions um, or you know some other representative actions. So, for example, allowing a, a consumer body to bring uh, a claim on behalf of consumers as a whole. And there's been a lot of talk in Europe about whether or not the, 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 those provisions have actually been effectively implemented, because in most EU states, actually, you know, majority of EU states at least. Um, it's not possible to bring collective actions in that way. The other point which has been made is is that the courts were right to restrict claimant rights in in the way that they did, um, because of course the the, the protector of um, data subjects against big tech is supposed to be the regulator, um, and opinions are divided on that. Because so the, the Information Commissioner's Office, who is the the data regulator in the UK. Um, you know, does have jurisdiction to penalise behaviour of the sort that that was at issue in the Lloyd and Google case. The difficulty, I think, has has been that you know, with the exception of of a couple of very large awards uh, soon after GDPR came into force, uh, so BA and, and Marriott, which were themselves uh, significantly reduced from the, the the initial figures that the ICO said they they were going to impose. I mean, the, the ICO has been very quiet in its enforcement action. It's been quite active in going after you know, things like uh, misuse of cookies, inappropriate marketing um, behavior by relatively small organizations. But what it's not really done is gone after you know, any of the big tech companies over systemic issues uh, regarding their use of data, you know, which we have seen uh, consumer activists, and in some case, data protection regulators take on in other jurisdictions. So, unless claimant lawyers think of another way of bringing collective actions, you know, th- th- this this is really going to pose uh, a question to the ICO about you know what its role is and what it should be doing going forward. And why do you think that is the case? Is it because the ICO is simply inundated with every low risk data breach notification out there? And because I, 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 I get the sense that the ICO privately might indicate that the GDPR has been breached or UK GDPR has been breached without then following through with a public statement or a big uh, a show off fine or one of these sort of things. Well, I think some of it is, an, is undoubtedly workload. We've seen that not, not just in the case of the ICO, but other European regulators post GDPR. You know, there, there are huge amounts of 
notifications coming through. So it's very difficult to give an individual notification or complaint uh, the attention that sometimes the regula- regulator might want to. And just as an aside for the listener, uh, any in theory, any breach, data breach that affects um, or presents a risk to data subjects must be notified to the ICA within 72 hours. Yes. As many will know, the fines in theory are up to 4% or 2% global turnover, depending on the nature of the infringement. And 17.4 million, I think, isn't it? The, The top end? Yes. And it's interesting, too, that the courts are therefore taking on some of this, or just by virtue of, of the claims brought, asked to take on some of this regulatory responsibility. So a question going forward, I think, Philip, is where will the ICO change or will the ICO change to take some of that responsibility back? It'll be interesting to see. I mean, we've we've got a new um, commissioner coming into you know c- c- coming in, and he's he's known to be quite critical of of big tech. Um, so it may be that that we see a, a different approach to enforcement. Uh, but I think you know the, the the ICO have got some considerable headwinds at the moment, and that that's you know purely down to the the amount of ground that they're they're asked to cover. Um, so I do think that you know that, that there is a continuing policy debate about whether civil litigation has a, a, an important role in enforcement. Mm. So if we think about the impacts of Lloyd and Google more broadly, we've discussed where the well the tension that it presents with the ICO and uh, the courts and where each fits. But what about broader? We've discussed things like the possibility of a class action. We've yeah. discussed the possibility of um, w- what damage, what counts as mere loss of control. I mean, I suppose the next question is yeah. really whether this is the end of the, the representative class action in, in data litigation. Mm. I mean, I, I think, you know, after Lloyd and Google came out, you know, there was a rush, coincidentally, of defendant firms mainly. Um, commentate, commentators coming out and saying, oh, th- th- "This this is the end for data class actions." You know, there are a number uh, lined up in the in the wings, like TikTok and Marriott, mm. um, and there was a feeling that this would basically break the business model. I don't think that's the case. I mean, I think Lord Leggett made it clear in his judgment that you know he 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 was throwing the claim out on the basis that you couldn't stuff both liability and quantum. Into the same class action, yeah. but he wasn't saying that you couldn't you, you you couldn't have a class action that would decide liability, and then you know leave leave quantum to be dealt with separately. Uh, so so a lot of people went, oh well, you know that that's that 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 means the same thing because it's just going to be too difficult to have in the Google case, you know, four million claimants and assess compensation individually. But I I don't know if that's right. You know, I mean, I I, I spent much of my career. Um, you know, not not just defending these claims, but monitoring overseas claims, particularly in the the US. And what you often find in the states is that you will have, you know, either either bellwether cases or full class actions. You know, and they'll determine liability, get to a judgment on liability, and then the thing will settle because it's very easy for for defendant. Uh, lawyers to say, oh well, we'll we'll fight every individual case over whether it's four hundred pounds or seven hundred and fifty pounds compensation. Um, but the reality is that if the claimant lawyers actually do have to, you know, take that scorch, scorch earth policy, it's it's not economical defending them. 
So what you often find is that there, there's a you know court sanctioned settlement, and you know that will divvy up um, relatively crudely the compensation um, to be payable to the individual defendants, and you know importantly from the claimant lawyer's point of view, their fees. Um, and there might be you know an arbitration scheme, for example, to deal with claims where um, you know that the parties can't agree on the amount of compensation. So I, I really don't think it's the end. I think it's just going to go back and, and, and make the well-financed claimants think again about how they skin this particular cat. So one way they could think again, not that we're here to, uh, to give uh, advice to claimants or firms, as it were, but uh, is that perhaps there might be tiers of claimants or there might be subclasses where they say, um, okay, well, we'll get a declaration, we'll, we'll approach litigation in two stages. We'll receive a declaration on liability first, and then we will get a class of claimants who have essentially suffered the same damage and present that. Well, the, the, if your settlement, as you were discussing, the US-style settlement approach isn't taken over here. I mean, it remains to be seen how how you could um, effectively deal with uh, the comp- if, if I call it the compensation leg of of these sort of you know putative class actions. I think it would be difficult to do that as representative action, but you could do it as group litigation order, um, and which is a species of uh, group litigation sanctioned by the court. Yes, so. You know that 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 would be more difficult to manage, and it would require, importantly, you know, claimants to actually make a positive decision that they were going to um, participate in the class action, rather than, you know, perhaps, you know, in 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 the opt out class actions, even be unknowing members of the class until a, a check arrives in the post one day. Um, but that you know that would certainly be a mechanism for dealing with it, mm. um, or or in fact you know just bringing individual claims for those claimants who who, who want to do it. But that, I mean, as we were saying, that might not be economically viable unless a funding structure changes, or unless a claimant firm is is being particularly novel with these claims. Yes. Um, so we've discussed the class actions, we've discussed the sort of damage required. And then finally, that I think Lloyd and Google had some implications for quantum. You know, how, how can you quantify um, a, a breach uh, of your data rights? And traditionally, the courts, or not even traditionally, it was accepted and sort of enshrined in Lloyd and Google that there is a minimum threshold for bringing those types of claims. You've got to exceed what's called a de minimis threshold before you could even establish the right to compensation. So, so I think there's a point that we've not mentioned earlier that, that, that we should probably mention for the listeners, which is you know, compensation claims under you know, the Data Protection Act 1998 and under the Data Protection Act 2018 uh, are claims for damage. And what that means is material damage, um, so financial loss that you've suffered as a result of the breach, which can occur, but is quite rare. It's hard to think of examples, so, isn't it? Well, it? It could be like, you've you've ripped off my bank details and someone's stolen all my money, or would it be that's more criminal? Yeah, I think it might be something like that, or you know, you've entrusted your data with with the third party and mm. they've they've lost it and you've suffered financial losses as a result. Mm. Um and then the the other limb which you know we're going to talk about in, in a later podcast is damages for distress. Mm. So the issue with distress damages is, you know, what, what what do you mean by distress? I mean, is it you're you're a bit upset 
to hear that your your data's been misused. Or have you suffered genuine psychological harm? Yeah. And the reason we discuss distress is because it is actually in the UK GDPR article, I think it's yeah. 82.1, says the right of redress is for material damage and non-material damage, including distress. Yeah. So the, 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 the legislature has said uh, data subjects can claim for distress. And and uh, I guess a question that Lloyd and Google, and as we will discuss in a later podcast, thought about was what does distress mean? And how do you quantify distress in terms of compensation? Of course, sitting here now, it's very easy to um, not think about what might have happened if the claimants had won. Um, and I think as we're all painfully aware, a couple of months ago, in the wings were not just TikTok, Marriott, et cetera, but thousands and thousands of individual claimants brought, you know, claims brought by these claimant firms, many of which were stayed or they've been dismissed and they had leave to appeal extended pending the Google and Lloyd decision. And we were sitting on a course of appeal judgment in favor of those claims. Exactly. I think it's very easy to think about Lloyd and Google as a case about the rights and wrongs of holding big tech to account. But Overall, I think I have to be clear that out of two decisions, neither of which were ideal, you know, that the Supreme Court came to the right one because, you know, we've got lots of clients that were just ordinary businesses which had, had data breaches and in most cases through no fault of their own, uh, we would certainly say. So so being um, like victims essentially of like yeah, a, a hostile it, attacker. Exactly. Yeah. And not only do they have to deal with the breach and, you know, notifying customers and trying to deal with mm you know, understandably wor worried individuals, but they then have to deal with a wave of these follow-on claims, which are, you know, enormously costly mm. and time-consuming to deal with and, um, you know, make a, a, a bad situation in terms of getting cyber insurance even worse by pushing up premiums. And it, it's difficult to think what, I don't know, businesses would have how they could have responded if Mr. Lloyd's claims had been upheld, or rather, I mean, if, if he had been given permission to serve out and then the substantive hearing had gone in his favour. It just seems like it could have really changed the landscape, I think, for um, how businesses would react with their customers. I think there'd be a lot more of trying to earmark potential liabilities, a lot more protective um, decisions taken and the threat could have been very great. Yes. So although I think Google and Lloyd was uh, probably a, a bad decision from the point of view of lawyers and meeting billing targets and that sort of thing, I think undoubtedly, you know, it had to be the right decision for the vast majority of businesses. Mm. I think the only question that's, you know, not been resolved by the courts is how or whether it's their role to hold big tech to account. Mm. And if it is, you know, what mechanisms the law develops to allow claimants to do that. And where do the thresholds lie? So it's like, what is so minor a contravention as to it not being worth it Quite. versus what is Google really needing to have its wings clipped over? Quite. Well, we hope that was uh, both educational and informative for our listeners. The next podcast that we're going to have in our, our series is going to be about uh, where litigation uh, arising from data um, breaches is going in the UK following Lloyd and Google. And as well as, as looking at, uh, you know, doing a bit more horizon scanning, we're also going to look at some of the other recent court decisions in this area and think about what that might mean for claimant lawyers. Mm -hmm.